0: Welcome to the Alaska Science Pod. This is an interview-style show where Ned Rizal interviews researchers and individuals about the great place we call Alaska. Ned has been writing science stories for the Geophysical Institute for 30 years. This episode features bird biologist Dan Ruthroff of the U.S. Geological Survey Science Center in Anchorage. He talks about the bar-tailed godwit, a bird that every fall flies from Alaska to New Zealand without stopping. That's a week to nine days of straight flying. Uh, So you're a biologist, right, Dan?
1: That's right. Yeah, ornithologist specifically, but uh, yeah, all sorts of different background, but yeah, focus on birds.
2: Yeah, so one of these birds has a pretty astounding life history here. It's one we're going to talk about today. It's a... uh, bar tailed godwit. And can you describe to me what that creature is?
1: Certainly, yeah. Uh, they look pretty unassuming to the average observer. They're a long-legged, long-billed bird. Uh, they're, oh, about the size of a small duck. Uh, they weigh about five, 600 grams when they're full of fat and ready to, to migrate. Uh, and, yeah, they're kind of a nondescript bird uh, that breeds on the tundra in western Alaska. The males have a nice kind of brick red color across their breast, and the females have a little bit of red, but um, yeah, they're they're not a bird that people often see in Alaska because they occur in areas where most people do not occur. So they're a bit of a rare bird, but uh, yeah, there's about 126,000 of them uh, in the world, uh, at least the Alaska breeding population, and uh, they come up here every year to breed.
2: So these are Shorebirds, right? I hear that term a lot. What is a shorebird?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I get asked this pretty frequently because I think people assume that shorebirds are any bird that you might see along the shore, like a heron or an egret, but uh, you know, to somebody like me who studies shorebirds, uh, it's got a very specific meaning. Uh and it includes birds like sandpipers and plovers and godwits and oyster catchers and so it's a group of genetically related birds. They share, you know, very Similar life history traits, and those traits uh, generally revolve around their their occurrence around wetlands. Uh, that, like the Bar-tailed Godwit, most other shorebirds are long-legged species with kind of long, thin bills, and and that kind of speaks to their natural history about being associated with wetlands and water. And they use those long legs to get into water, and they use that long bill to probe for food in the substrates uh, in which they occur.
2: Yeah, so we're picturing shorebirds here being. What immediately comes to my mind is sort of these guys on the beach that are running in and out of the waves. Um, exactly. But you said yep. this species breeds on the tundra, huh? So they're they're far away from the ocean at times.
1: They are. And, and that's the case with a lot of the shorebirds in Alaska, that uh, almost all the shorebirds in Alaska are migratory, that they come up here just in the spring and the summer to take advantage of you know, Alaska's abundance of uh, insects, basically. That's what they rely on to they their young. And so they're distributed pretty much all across Alaska, wherever you find good food. And we know there's a lot of, you know, uh, mosquitoes tell us there's a lot of arthropods all over the state. So even in the middle of the state in Fairbanks, there's a lot of boreal breeding shorebirds like uh, yellow legs and solitary sandpipers. But in general, most of the shorebirds in Alaska are restricted to kind of tundra regions. So Western Alaska and North Slope of Alaska. And Typically closer to the coast, uh, especially bar-tailed godwits here. Hard-pressed to find a bar-tailed godwit that's probably more than 30 or 40 miles from the coastline. They really are associated with uh, the wetlands and the shorelines.
2: Okay, so they all come up here f- for that great natural resource, bugs. Um, they do. So back to our species here, the bar-tailed godwit. Where are those birds now? Are there any still in Alaska? And I'm interviewing Dan here in early November when it's 14 degrees out in Fairbanks and yeah. we're skating on ponds now. So where where are I the Bartail Godwits right now?
1: They are uh, probably uh, someplace much warmer and more benign, much uh, smarter than I am. Uh, they get out of here and go someplace warm. That There may be a few stragglers left in the Alaska Peninsula. Uh, some of the juvenile birds tend to be pretty late in leaving, but almost all the bartailed Godwits part of Alaska by by early October, and they fly uh, nonstop, uh, unbelievably, across the entire Pacific Ocean to their nonbreeding grounds in New Zealand and eastern Australia, and uh, as we're experiencing winter up here in the northern hemisphere, these birds are well south in the southern hemisphere, where it is now summer, so they pretty much chase summer year-round, and they're down there where it's much more benign, and... uh, you know these birds are associated with water and so obviously they can't make a a go of it up here in the winter when our water freezes they can't access the food so yeah they they migrate to take advantage of not only resources up here in Alaska but the nice resources down in New Zealand and Australia
2: so back to that migration which is the astonishing part these guys take off in August or September mm-hmm. and you guys at the USGS science center were among those scientist who found out where they go, and you said that's all the way to New Zealand or Australia, and they don't stop. How did you know, how did someone find out that these birds don't stop?
1: Well, there were some people who had hunches that they flew nonstop just based on sort of the natural occurrence of birds, the timing of when they left Alaska and the timing of when they arrived in New Zealand and Australia, but it, uh, you know, honestly, it just seemed impossible. I mean, how could an animal possibly fly nonstop, flapping flight? These birds don't glide. They can't land on water. How could they possibly fly for nine days straight, 10 days straight ha- across 7,000 miles of open ocean? So it didn't seem probable, but some uh, clever people who really thought outside the box started thinking that maybe this was possible. And uh, yeah, my former supervisor, Bob Gill, and my co-worker, Lee Tibbetts, They started working on bar-tailed godwits along with collaborators down in Australia and New Zealand, and they started marking them at the very beginning of an era when tags to monitor the migration of birds became miniaturized enough that you could deploy them on a bird as small as a bar-tailed godwit. You know, today there are these tags that communicate a bird's location to a satellite that are a gram. Uh, They're very teeny. You can put them on small birds, but... When Bob and Lee first started, that was not the case, and you actually had to surgically implant these tags and, in the bird. And so uh, they we did some efforts here in Alaska trying the surgical implantation and went okay. Uh, it turns out it's a lot easier to catch godwits in New Zealand, uh, where they form large, large roofs where you could catch them. So Bob and Lee went down to New Zealand, and they deployed some tags down there. And these were battery-powered tags, and they didn't expect that the tags would last very long uh, just due to battery limitation. They thought that they'd track their migrations to Alaska, but uh, one of the radios, uh, the battery, lasted miraculously long time, and uh, this female Godwit was tracked all the way flying from New Zealand to the Yellow Sea in the spring, and then from the Yellow Sea to Alaska to breed, and then all the way nonstop confirming some of these people's hunches from Alaska to New Zealand in in the fall, uh so it was really revelatory to a lot of people and confirmed you know the hunch that some of these people had, but really you know science didn't think this was possible at all, like all the energetic flight models up until that point said that this was not possible, so it really kind of rewrote the book on some of what we now know about animal physiology
2: Wow, so why don't you explain to me real quick again um these birds are now in New Zealand and Australia. Uh, when do they come back to Alaska, and what is that route again? And like, how how far are their nonstop flights on their way back to Alaska?
1: Yeah, it's equally impressive. Really, they birds. So the the subspecies of bar Godwit that that breeds in Alaska. There's five or six subspecies of bar Godwit, kind of scattered all over the Arctic, really. Uh, but the ones in the in the flyway that connects Alaska to Asia, which is called the East asia australasia Flyway, uh, these birds conduct the most impressive migrations. And so the Alaska breeding birds will leave uh, their non-breeding sites in Australia and New Zealand, oh, in, in March or so. And they fly nonstop to the Yellow Sea region of China and Korea. And that's a flight of about 6,000 miles. So it's not quite as long as flying nonstop to Alaska, but it's a very long, impressive flight as well. Uh, And they stage at wetlands and mudflats in the Yellow Sea region to basically regain all the fuel that they burned getting there from New Zealand and Australia. So they spend four or five weeks in the Yellow Sea, and then they continue on their way to Alaska. And um, Bartel Godwitz in Alaska breed from the North Slope all the way down to uh, near the Alaska Peninsula. So the birds that breed in the south arrive right earlier because the snow melts sooner and the birds that breed in the north typically arrive in southwestern Alaska and then work their way up north as the snow melts. So they kind of trickle in in early May and settle on to their breeding territories and start their uh, their nesting season.
2: Incredible. And you guys have found out a bit about their physiology too, like like their body parts kind of shrink some of their body parts before they migrate?
1: Yeah, indeed. That was uh, my uh, my former supervisor, who I mentioned earlier, Bob Gill. He had this really amazing, uh, fortuitous uh, occurrence where out at Cold Bay, Alaska, uh, a guy working for the National Weather Service out there had a bunch of bar-tailed godwits run into a radar in the middle of the night, a dark, stormy night, and he collected them and he Uh, thought that they might be valuable for some ornithologist somewhere. And sure enough, Bob got a hold of them and he realized that these birds were massively fat. And, you know, Bob had worked in Alaska long enough to see this happening and he'd collected enough birds to know that in the fall, most shorebird species in Alaska put on a lot of fat. Even birds that don't undertake these epic migrations, they still put on a nice layer of fat and it was known that that's what fueled these migrations. But for Bar-tailed Godwits, it was uh, kind of... Absurd how much fat they put on. They they double their body mass hmm. before migrating, uh, and it's just pure fat. So they just become these little butter balls full of fat that they use to to fuel their migrations.
2: And what are they eating, Dan, to get that fat?
1: Up here in Alaska, they're mostly eating uh, a very small little clam that you know most humans don't even notice because they're so small that we don't typically consider them food for ourselves, but they're perfect size for the godwits. It's called the Baltic telon is the common common name. It's Lamechala Baltica, a teeny little white or pink shelled clam about the size of a dime. And these birds probe in the mud with their long bills. And they have they have little sensory organs on the tip of their bill that help them. It's sort of like a, a, a within mud sonar that helps them identify where the prey are. And so they're very efficient at finding this food, they eat these hard-shelled clams entirely whole, and they swallow them and put them in their gizzard, and they crush them up in their muscular gizzard to crush the shell and extract the flesh and turn that into fat.
2: And a lot of fat, right? Double their body weight. And what about their internal organs, some of prior to flight?
1: Yeah, that was another... So when, when Bob got his hand on some of those juvenile birds, they looked at the size of the various... Organs within the, the birds themselves. So, not only were they very fat, but they found that they had atrophied many of the organs related to digestion. Uh, and that seemed a little counterintuitive at the time. Like, how do they get so fat if they have atrophied digestive organs? Well, work from one of our colleagues in Europe had demonstrated that bar tailed godwits that, that migrate through uh, the Netherlands and breed up in Siberia that these birds, over a span of just a few weeks, they will, uh, the the word is hypertrophy, it's the opposite of atrophy. So these birds will increase the size of their gizzards and their stomach, increase the length and mass of their intestines. So they really upregulate all these organs that help them uh, metabolize energy. So they can take in all this food, process it, store it as fat, and then shortly before they migrate, they magically start to atrophy those muscles. So it's a amazing, like, eco-physiological interaction that these birds demonstrate that they can adaptively regulate the size of their organs to maximize their various, like, life history phases across the annual cycle. They don't need a heavy stomach when they're flying across the Pacific, so they atrophy it shortly before they take off on their migration. So some really amazing stuff that, that – that Bob discovered over the course of his research.
2: Gosh, that is magical. And you guys and your colleagues have also... magic. (laughs) Yeah. You guys and your colleagues have also found that they often... These birds kind of get a push from weather systems, right?
1: Yeah. That was, again, another thing that Bob, uh, just spending time out on the Alaska Peninsula and and Yukon-Kuskokwim-Delta, you start to see these giant storm systems come through in the fall. Uh, you know, we experienced them here in Anchorage, these low-pressure systems to stream across the Gulf of Alaska. And Bob would be out in the field, and one day there'd be huge flock of birds, say, you know, Dunlins or Western Sandpipers, and a storm would blow through. And the next day they'd all be gone. Huh? And as a low-pressure system comes across Alaska, it's moving in this counterclockwise motion and what folks have come to realize is that these birds take advantage of that movement and they jump on the backside of these low pressure systems as they move across the region and they get a huge tailwind. And Bob, by virtue of being able to track these birds across the Pacific, they were able to overlay the winds across their entire flight uh, all the way from Alaska to New Zealand and figure out how these birds actually could anticipate weather systems well offshore, really amazing, such to that they would launch off the, Alaska, uh, off the Yukon-Kuskokwim Delta to start their migrations, and they were selectively departing during conditions that gave them very advantageous tailwinds over the large track of their migration. And they would not leave when there were poor winds. So these birds uh, could really sense what was going on, and we still don't know how they do that. Uh, you know, And we've also tracked birds that off on a migration and hit a bad patch of wind and turn around and come right back to Alaska and wait it out. So they're uh, clever. They don't need, you know, a meteorologist to tell them what's going on. And they're really attuned to the weather systems and they take advantage of them. And that's certainly a huge part of the evolution of this migration is just taking advantage of predictable weather systems.
2: Wow. Fascinating. Um, yeah. Why might these Godwits use the whole planet? You know, why did they live from Alaska to Australia to Australia, New Zealand, and then go way up to the Yellow Sea, Korea, and China, and then back to Alaska when the the chickadees in my backyard, what are they using you know the thousand acres of UAF yep. here yeah why 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 might it's a question probably can't answer, but yeah why would why would a creature it just seems like there's a lot of risk to uh, cover that much of the globe.
1: Yeah, it is kind of counterintuitive, Uh, you know, and we've all asked ourselves that question. Is it just the human assumption that, oh, my gosh, it's very scary to fly across the Pacific? Uh, It certainly seems scary to me. But, you know, Polynesian seafarers weren't frightened by it, and they found their way across the Pacific and uh, made some amazing human movements. And, And, you know, the birds are really doing the same thing. That's something that we've come to realize, that we sort of assume... That migration might be risky for these birds, but uh, in fact, I think they're really exploiting uh, a life history trait that is is consistent and reliable and maximizes their fitness. I mean, that's kind of the just-so answer, but obviously they wouldn't do it if it didn't work. And it's worked for millennia that these birds are able to take advantage of these very abundant resources that are very ephemeral. So there's no... No home for a godwin in Alaska during the winter that they rely on unfrozen wetlands and they rely on arthropods that, you know, they simply can't find year round. So they've evolved this life history strategy to to leave when the pickings are slim and come back when it gets fat again. So uh, we've really seen no evidence that their migration across the Pacific is risky. Uh, It's tough to... Estimate the survival of these birds during their migration because the only way we can do that is by putting one of these tags on them. And we know that tag affects their ability to migrate a little bit, but we don't have birds that just plunk into the ocean uh, that we've tracked on migration. They uh, they manage their migrations very well. So yeah, it does seem counterintuitive that this must be a really risky thing, but. Uh, sort of the just-so answer is that if it's so risky, it couldn't possibly have evolved. So it looks very daring to us, but I think it's pretty casual to a bar-tailed godwit.
2: Wow, that's cool. There is some risk, Dan, that you talk about, like in the Yellow Sea of China, maybe what, South Korea, a lot of their wetlands over the past few decades have gone away. Like there's buildings there now or shrimp farms or something. Uh, could you tell me about that a little bit?
1: Yeah. So I just, you know, spent a lot of time talking about how counterintuitive this is and how really it must be kind of a deadly reliable environmental setting for them because otherwise this couldn't have evolved. Well, uh, unfortunately that environmental setting that was so consistent for so many thousands of years for these birds has really been, uh, altered. And, Bartailed godwits in Alaska they breed in areas that are really pristine there's almost no threat on the breeding grounds facing bartailed godwits that they're in areas where almost no humans occur there's no industry there's nothing but their staging grounds in the Yellow Seeds that they use each spring uh, are under uh, you know real real pressure there's been a huge reclamation of the wetlands and the mudflats in that area by uh, the various nations in that region And to the extent to where people estimate as much as 65 or 70% of the the wetlands and mudflats that all these birds rely on have disappeared. Like you say, they've turned them into uh, factories and ports and uh, just habitats that shorebirds absolutely cannot use. They can't find clams in a shrimp farm or a factory. So one thing that researchers have noted, there's a group of folks detailed the departure of migrating bar-tailed goddess from New Zealand every year for about the last 15 years. They know exactly when these birds—they know the individuals because they have unique color combinations of bands on their legs, and they go watch them every spring as they migrate, and they know exactly when they leave, and they know exactly when they come back. And they have noted that these birds are leaving New Zealand earlier and earlier— but one thing they've also noticed is that they're having to spend a longer period of time in the yellow sea and yet they're not arriving in alaska any earlier so they depart new zealand earlier but they're not arriving in alaska any earlier and hmm. we know in alaska springs are getting earlier here and so birds are trying to track the timing of their annual movements with their local environment so in theory godwits should be arriving a little earlier here snow is melting earlier Arthropods are emerging earlier, but we're seeing signs that there's pressure, and that's being reflected by these birds having to stay longer in the Yellow Sea, and this is because their food stocks have been depleted. So even where wetlands do remain, they've been degraded due to human disturbance and pollution, and the food stocks, their researchers studying the the clams in the Yellow Sea, they've completely crashed. So there's much less food in the Yellow Sea than there used to be, even 10 years ago, and 100 years ago, there, you know, was no reclamation. All those wetlands were intact, and all these birds were very happy, but, yeah, unfortunately, the East Asia Australasia flyway is the most threatened flyway in the world with nearly 40 species of waterbird that are critically endangered, so Brazil godwits that breed in Alaska are one of those species. Um, they really rely on those wetlands each year to make their spring migration, um, and luckily, we have you know, intact wetlands in Alaska that these birds can still rely on, and that's a plus. But the resiliency of these birds, you know, there's got to be a point at which they can't take anymore. And Bartell Gabbard populations have slowly declined over the last 30 years, and it's probably a result of what's going on in the Yellow Sea, although we don't know for sure. But given that non-breeding sites in New Zealand and Australia and breeding sites in Alaska are really pretty much intact, that's sort of the idea that that's the smoking gun
2: yeah so these birds are hardwired to make this giant loop every year and that part of the loop is not what it used to be Uh, exactly but alaska is and that's that's a theme i see a lot and uh it's one thing i appreciate about alaska is uh like our magnificent swamps right Exactly. The the tundra, right? It's just nobody is going to build on that. Nobody wants to develop it. Uh, There's not many people here anyway. Yeah. So there's just a lot of opportunity for other residents of the earth to do what they've always done. Now, Dan, you and your coworkers, uh, since the days of Bob Gill, Lee Tibbetts, um, I don't know if Lee's still working. I know Bob is retired. She is. Yeah.
1: Lee and I are still
2: working together. Okay. Great. So you guys, of course, you're very interested in these and other birds, but you have you did a recent couple of years of survey of the bar-tailed godwits, and why don't you tell me what you found there?
1: Yeah. So there was a, a wildlife biologist at the Yukon Delta National Wildlife Refuge, a really amazing, accomplished guy, Brian McCaffrey. He worked with Bob Gill. They did a lot of work together on bar-tailed godwits, and he and Bob, back in the late 1990s, flew surveys of... Basically, the entire coast of the Yukon Delta, uh, from the mouth of the Yukon down to the mouth of the Kuskokwim, and then the entire north side of the Alaska Peninsula, all the estuaries in, on the Alaska Peninsula, trying to count tailed Godwits. And they realized, uh, kind of unexpectedly, that basically all the bartailed Godwits that breed in Alaska accumulate at just a few small spots, um, primarily in near the mouth of the Kuskokwim River, uh, so, concerned by continued population declines counted at non-breeding sites in New Zealand, we wanted to replicate Bob and Brian's aerial surveys. And so, in 2018 and 2019, with the help of uh, uh, a pilot biologist from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Heather Wilson, and a uh, great biologist from the Fish and Wildlife Service, Zach Poland, we jumped in an airplane and we went and replicated these surveys. And we're very pleased to find that again, these wetlands, which, as you just mentioned, uh, we're very fortunate in Alaska to have really pristine wetlands and mudflats. Uh, these birds were still using them in really incredibly high numbers that we counted. That there's a really there's a new estimate of the population size of the Alaska breeding bar-tailed godlets in it derives from birds counted at their non-breeding sites in Australia and New Zealand. And it's very accurate now. We think there's about 125,000 of Alaska-breeding bar godwits in the world. And on our surveys in 2019, we counted 100,000 near the mouth of the Kuskokwim River, essentially. Uh, And that reflects all the birds that breed in Alaska and all the young that they produce that year. And the difference between our count and the count in New Zealand reflects this group of birds that doesn't leave New Zealand and Australia until they're adults, that there's a subadult population that remains down there for a few years before they come to Alaska for the first time. So we were really pleased to see that the birds are still using these sites. Uh, it's a little uh, frightening that they use such a small sliver of Alaska that these birds apparently really rely, especially on these small shoals that are off the mouth of the Kuskokwim River that, over a very small stretch of coastline on these little sandy islands, we found over 90,000 godwits. Uh, so almost the entire Alaska breeding population packed into a teeny little stretch of coastline, which speaks to the importance of this coastline, but also the vulnerability that these birds might experience, that they really need this spot, and if something should go wrong there, uh, that that's not a good thing for these birds. They, they're they there because they that's where they're going to get their fuel for their flight, and uh, apparently they're not going anywhere else, so this is the best spot for them, and they really need that that ecosystem to remain intact.
2: Yeah, so you showed me a great map of these crescent-shaped sand islands just off the Kuskokwim River, and these islands are all, like, within 15 miles of one another, right?
1: Yeah, and, you know, a few of them have, have names, but they're sort of permanent enough that They've acquired local names, and they show up on a USGS topographic map. But some of the others are just these unnamed little wispy shoals that, for all we know, uh, they come and go as the currents at the mouth of the cusp of them weave and push them around. Uh, when Brian McCaffrey was flying surveys, he knew that these areas were really important to the Godwitch. Uh and over the course of 25 years, they've remained important. And yeah, they it's this very teeny area. And we think the godwits like this area because you know, most shorebird species that use Alaska these they, they use these similar sites for their migratory staging, like Western sandpipers and dunlins, and they'll occur in huge numbers in these same areas, but they typically roost near shore. They don't go far offshore. But these shoals are five to ten kilometers offshore and the bar tailed godwits are almost they're pretty much the only shorebird species that we see out there and we think that they just like the peace and quiet out there that they're not going to get disturbed by any mammalian predators and they cannot be uh, they can't be surprised by birds like peregrine falcons and deer falcons that's probably the, the biggest predator facing bar-tailed godwits are, are large falcons and they're out in the middle of the ocean essentially on this teeny little sandy island and they can see anything around them so these shoals no, a they're very close to incredibly productive mudflats that are full of really high quality food for them, and B they're so flat and low lying that they can see in all directions, and and it's so it's a very safe place for them. There's no disturbance, and they can just mind business and put on their fat.
2: Right, so they they might not necessarily be feeding on these islands as much as they are in adjacent mudflats. Maybe,
1: yeah. That seems to be the case. I've spent time on the ground at this site. Uh, that was back in 2008, and it was really fantastic. You'd see these massive flocks of bar-tailed godwits out on these mud flats, just wheeling around, feeding as long as they could. And as the tide started to push them up, they, you know, I was on shore. I couldn't get out on these islands because it was too risky. Uh, you know, they go completely underwater on really high tides. So. I'm standing there on shore with my spotting scope, watching these birds come closer and closer to me, and I'm getting very excited that I'm going to get a good look at them. And then at some point, they just get up and they fly away. And I watch this smoke of birds fly, you know, 10 kilometers offshore and sit down on one of these little islands. So uh, it was very deliberate movement by these birds. They don't want to be close to shore if they don't have to be. And these shoals are a really unique geographic feature. They're, you know, there's similar features all across Alaska, but For the Yukon-Kuskokwem Delta, these are the most developed and permanent shoals, and I think Bartel Garud's really keyed on them.
2: Well, what what a neat discovery to find that this tiny little part of Alaska is so important for this whole population of birds.
1: Yeah, and it's also something that's totally nondescript, that I think, as a human, you would completely overlook. You'd just see a little sandy island and think, what's... Possible good is that for uh, nobody could use that, uh, but in fact, this entire population of this magnificent shorebird species relies on these little sandy islands to make this epic migration.
2: Yeah, another thing about the wonder of Alaska, right? You never, mm-hmm. you never know, or you don't realize, yeah, how important this little sliver is to other creatures, uh, which you know might not seem important to humans, but sure is important to the birds.
1: Exactly. Yeah, it's really easy to underestimate those things and just kind of take them for granted. But uh, yeah, it it was definitely a revelation to us how important these are.
2: So you also said there might be some hope for the Yellow Sea mudflats not to be to have some protection over there.
1: Yeah, there's been a a real market change in the last four or five years, um, mostly by the Chinese government that. I think there were a couple of things. There was, you know, sort of the world economic downturn four or five years ago, that and and a whole lot of gentle pressure by various conservation groups publicizing the plight of the East asia Australasia flyway and the importance of Yellow Sea wetlands. The Chinese government really uh, put a halt to reclamation of wetlands and mudflats in the Yellow Sea. So that began in 2018. And honestly, I don't know. Uh, I know their colleagues, they're looking to see if these construction projects have ceased. Uh, I, I don't know what's going on, but the Chinese government has released statements saying that there will be no more reclamation. I think they started to appreciate just the amazing importance of these wetlands and their uh, duty to maintain them. So that's been a really good change. They still need a lot of help to recover. Like I said, the you know, just the human pressure on these mudflats, the disturbance and the the pollution coming into the Yellow Sea, they've been very degraded. But if they're given time to recover and the food stocks can recover, that will go a long way towards helping maintain these uh, uh, amazing migratory movements.
2: Yeah. Well, why don't we close on that hopeful note and uh, you'll go out and count these birds some other year coming up here in fall and uh, you'll be able to learn more about how they're doing, um yeah, um, is there anything I haven't asked you, Dan, that you'd like to add?
1: I can't think of anything else i uh yeah, I thank you for your questions. Those hit on a lot of the topics that covers uh it, it's always boggling to me that there's this resource in Alaska, and we don't understand how interconnected it is to all these places spread across the globe, like you say, the species uh yeah, they're Alaska born, but they belong to everyone and it's it's pretty amazing resource that we support here.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Here's here's to the mud flats and the and exactly. the swamps and the quiet acreage of Alaska, right? That is yeah. is home to yep. so many creatures All those in
1: romantic places that we take for granted that are so important.
2: Yeah. And we have the bugs yep. <laughs> <just> whining in <laughs> our ears and bugs. uh you know, that's not yep. such a bad thing for, for other creatures.
1: Exactly. When the mosquitoes swarm me, I solace in the fact that the birds are eating them.
2: There you go. Good way to look at things. All right, Dan. Well, thanks a lot. And uh, yeah, keep up you the bet. good work, man. Thanks, Ned. I appreciate it. Yeah. Nice talking with you. You
0: too. If you enjoyed listening to this interview, stay tuned for the next episode that releases every first Tuesday of the month. Or, if you want to read some of Ned's articles, go to the Alaska Science Forum at gi.alaska.edu forward slash Alaska Science Forum.